You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our friends at MyBookie. It might be December, the college football season might be on its final legs, but it's not done yet. So there's still time, guys. If you haven't already, if you've been on the fence, now is the time. Go to mybookie.ag today, right now. Pause this episode, come right back to it. Use the promo code UGA when you sign up for a new account. And they are going to give you cash, guys, straight to your account, up to $200. You're going to match that first deposit. And once you bet that first deposit, that cash can be withdrawn and go into your actual wallet to do whatever in the world it is that you want to do with it. It's a no-brainer. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. I am your host, Tyler. And back with me again today, I know this is a, a weird day for you, Charlie. Usually we don't record together on Sunday, so I appreciate your flexibility. Curtis um, had some more things he had to deal with today, so he is not able to be on the show. We're going to get him back. Hopefully next week we'll have him back on, but the holiday season is just that people are all over the place. But Charlie was kind enough to be able to move some things around her schedule and be here, so it's the start of the podcast. Save the day once again, Charlie. How was your weekend? Did you watch Stetson? I did. I usually don't watch the Heisman, but that's probably because there are no Georgia players in it. Not they since 1992. In a long time. They did a good job. I, you know, wish Stetson would have won, but we all knew that wasn't going to happen. Okay, were you, I'm curious to see if you were kind of like me. So we said last week, I think in the mailbag episode last week, we were asked a question about do we think Stetson had a chance to win? I think we both said like under 10%, right? Yes. Something like that. But were you like me that even though like you knew intellectually, like in your brain, like he's oh, I was he, hoping. Right, hoping, right. Hoping. Like, yes, it's like, I know he's not going to win. And then, and then when CJ Stroud, like I convinced myself, like maybe he can win. Maybe it's a chance. Like I was watching the, the, the whole clip they had of him and his mom and everything up there and Kirby, you know, doing a, little, a quick little interview. And I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm just convinced myself, like, I think he can win. Can he win? Oh my God. Was I wrong? Is that going to win? Oh my God. Are we going to have a Heisman Trophy winner? And then when CJ Stroud gets announced, or when Caleb Williams gets announced as the winner, like I was disappointed. Did you feel that? Well, I mean, obviously, but you know. But like, if, if, it, if you would have told me on, um, Wednesday, I guess, when we record that mail, mailbag show, that, oh, yeah, Stetson's, uh, he's not going to win. I'm like, yeah, I know he's not going to win. Like, I know, like, there's no chance he's going to win. I would not have been disappointed. You but still hope. Yeah, so, I don't know. It's a little bit of a blow, but then 
It's fine. Stetson didn't win, but he was there, and I love it for the guy. Good for him. Good for our program. But, Charlie, we did not get a chance to answer all of the questions that were sent in with that last mailbag episode. We had to we ran out of time. It was your fault. We had to get out of here. No, it wasn't your fault. We had, we had, we had about an hour to record, and we got to as many as we could. But we still have some more that we needed to get to, and I did not want to leave everybody hanging because some of these are fantastic questions. So we're going to do our best today to answer all of those overflow questions. That's what, that's what we're going to call them. This is the overflow mailbag episode from last week. So some of these are about the SEC Championship games. Some of them are about the Heisman Trophy. We got a couple questions like in the past 24 hours about the Heisman Trophy we're going to talk about. We got some transfer portal stuff, even a couple questions about the Peach Bowl. So a nice little mix here today, Charlie. But um, let's go ahead. I don't want I don't want to miss out on any of these. We missed out on some of them last week. So I'm going to try to be less long-winded today if that's possible i don't know but uh we're gonna give it our best shot so charlie where are we starting all right well we're starting with the heisman carl has a question he wants to know if stetson got shafted last night saturday night coming in fourth in the heisman voting what would your ballot have looked like i do want to ask you charlie so we were both disappointed that stetson did not win i maybe i asked you this last week i don't know we do a lot of podcasts i forget what i say half the time it would be on my ballot well, yeah what would your ballot have been I think Stetson Bennett would have been on my ballot, but I'm also a Georgia fan. Would he have been um, number one on your ballot? Could you get to vote one, two, and no, three? No, no. I think Jalen Carter probably would have been number one. Well, if it truly is about the best player in the That's country. That's what I'm saying. I mean, just like Roquan Smith. Just, right. Yeah, I mean, yes. Exactly. Yes, I mean, so, no, my ballot would not have included. Will Anderson last year should have won the Heisman Trophy. My ballot would not have included those players. Who would it have been? If you could open to the entire college football world. I mean, that's a tough question. Jalen Carter, for sure. Mm, I, I I mean I think be, I think Jalen I think we could have back to back number one overall draft picks. Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. Yeah, so I I don't I don't hate that. Would Stetson have been on there? Mm, oh, I mean Charlie hating already. Is he one of the best players in the country? I don't know Brock Bowers. Brock, oh that's a great one, Charlie. I mean I know I'm did just you saying. The, did Georgia you see all the Notre Dame right fans now? this week after Mackey won the the after Bowers won the Mackey Award? Notre Dame fans like losing their minds that Michael Mayer did not win. I mean, no. Like it's I just that's what fans do. And that's I what don't fans really do. Care. You're the Twitter hound, Charlie. You're all over Twitter. You didn't see that? No. Okay. Well, they were all over the place. So, what you, what would your ballot have looked like? Well, if we're including just these four, I would say Stetson won, obviously. No, I mean Caleb Williams. I think objectively, like, if you look at what this award has become, Charlie, this award for better or worse has become about which player, really, which quarterback. Let's be honest has superior stats and the most wow plays, those Heisman moments, and less about who the actual quote-unquote best player is. It's not an MVP award. It's really not necessarily for the best player because the way that they define best player is by stats, right? So all these voters are looking at the numbers and saying, okay, well, who has the best numbers? How good you are, your talent level is directly correlated with your numbers. And most voters can get past that. So that's what this award has become, and that's fine. It's just what this award is. You just have to understand that going in, embrace it. It is what it is. And with that being what this award has become, Caleb Williams is the correct winner of the Heisman Trophy, right? Because he had superior stats. He had some of those wow plays. Like, when you watch Caleb Williams play, guys, like, it's fun to watch him play because he's just got this different kind of playing style when he tries to run the football. Um, he's, he's a fun guy to watch play. So I don't have any problem with Caleb, Caleb Williams winning the award. And if I was picking between these four quarterbacks, I probably would have had him number one on my ballot. However, I would have had Stetson number two. 
My biggest issue with how things went down with the final voting, the tabulations, was not so much that that Caleb Williams won. I have no problem with that. Again, no problem at all. My issue was when I saw the final tabulations and I saw that not only did Caleb Williams win, cool, fine, whatever, but it was Max Duggan who came in second. Honestly, I thought Max Duggan might finish fourth. I thought it pro- The way I thought it would go down is I thought it would be Caleb Williams, C.J. Stroud, Stetson, Max Duggan. That's like In my mind, that's kind of how I saw that going. And maybe I'm crazy. Maybe all of you expect the Stetson to be fourth. I don't know, but that's kind of how I saw this playing out. I did not see Max Duggan getting near as many first place votes as he did. In fact, it's kind of inexplicable to me. He got 188 first place votes. Stetson only got 30, was it 35, I want to say? No, Stetson got 36. CJ Stroud got 37. Duggan got 188. Caleb Williams got 544. Duggan 188. Stroud 37. Stetson 36. And look, I really like Max Duggan, guys. I've watched almost every single TCU game this year with the exception, I think, the Tarleton games. I couldn't find that on TV. But let's go back to the beginning of the year. I told you guys there's two huge win total bets I put down this year. I put a couple win total bets, but the two biggest ones I put down were Arkansas over six and a half. They let me down. They screwed me. They lost four games by combined nine points. It is what it is in that game. Still not quite over it, but getting there. TCU is the other big win total bet. Nailed that one by like October. And then I had a flyer on them, 2,800 to one to win the Big 12 title again. I'm still not quite over that one because... Oh my, I'm convinced they actually won that game with Golan. I think he was actually in neither here nor there. That's not what we're talking about today. But needless to say, I've watched a lot of TCU. And I watched a fair amount of TCU last year. For a couple of years, I've really liked Max Duggan. I've always thought this guy is a really, really tough football player. He is totally 100% a team guy. I mean, guys, this is the dude that had been starting for two or three years coming to this year. Chandler Morris, son of Chad Morris, actually won the job in fall camp. And Duggan could have transferred. He could have said, no, nah, I'm out. No, he didn't do that. He stuck with his team, said he had no intentions whatsoever transferring. Like he said, the Heisman Trophy ceremony, his goal was to be the best backup quarterback. He could be just an incredible teammate, a tough dude. And when he got his chance, he was ready and led them, not to a Big 12 title, but to, I guess, a Big 12 regular season title, if that's a thing. I don't know. They don't Actually, that's not a thing. But got them close, right? And put them in the college football playoff. And he's a really good, talented player. And if he would have finished maybe slightly above Stetson, I probably wouldn't be upset. And I'm not like freaking out. I'm not really upset about it. Again, it's the Heisman Trophy. At this point, guys, I can go back to my regularly scheduled programming and not care about the Heisman Trophy. I was like momentarily like really into it because, because of Stetson for like five or six days. But like I told you last week, I've never watched this ceremony in my adult life. This is the first one I've watched. Maybe ever, honestly, maybe ever. Usually, I just kind of see it in passing or see it on social media nowadays. Like, oh, this person won? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's what I thought was going to happen. But I'm going to go back to probably hating it now. But regardless, like if Max Duggan would just been slightly ahead of Stetson, I would have been like, okay, it's fine. But for him to be as far ahead of Stetson as he ended up being in the final tabulations, I mean, Max Duggan ended up with 1,420 points. Stetson ended up with 349. He had more than 1,000 more points than Stetson. That... That doesn't compute with me. And again, I go back. So what do we say about this award with Caleb Williams? It's about numbers, right? Well, statistically, I mean, yeah, Max Duggan had slightly better numbers than Stetson, like in, in most categories. He didn't throw for as many yards as Stetson, but he didn't have quite as many attempts. He threw for, I think, what, three-tenths of, of a yard more. Uh, on average, he had nine yards per attempt. Stetson ended up with 8.7 yards per attempt. He did, however, have 30 touchdown passes, 
Stetson only had 20 touchdown passes. He had, uh, Duggan had four interceptions, Stetson had six. Duggan had, what, 400, a little more than 400 yards rushing and six touchdowns there. Stetson had just under 200 yards rushing and seven touchdowns. So Duggan accounted for 36 touchdowns. Stetson accounted for 27 touchdowns. Stetson threw for slightly more yards. But, like, look, we are talking about a negligible statistical gap between these two players. And there's also the reality that Duggan and TCU played far more closer games than we did. Duggan was playing in almost all their fourth quarters. And as Seth Emerson told us last week with that great number, Stetson only had a little over 300 yards passing total in fourth quarters of games this year. So there's a little context to that. But again, as you've got over, almost 1,000 voters. Most of them don't have the sophistication and understanding of football to really look that deeply at things. But I just don't get it. Like The numbers are very, very close. Even if you want to say Duggan had better numbers, we're talking about an infinitesimal difference between their numbers, yet there was this massive gap in how the voting played out, and he was that far ahead of Stetson. That's the biggest problem I have with it. That makes no sense to me. And honestly, when you watch those two players play, I think Stetson Bennett's the better player. And this is not coming from a Georgia fan who watched like half of the Big 12 championship, and that's the only time I watched TC all year. I've watched literally 12 of their 13 games, guys, and watched them very closely because I had a vested interest in doing so. And while I have a lot of respect for Max Duggan, I love his style of play. That dude's just a tough warrior for his team. I, I think Stetson's better. I think Stetson's better. And Stetson also won his conference championship, which I, I don't know how much that factors into the voting. It does for some people, it doesn't for others. I don't know. I think Stetson kind of got punished in a lot of ways. Well, for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's a former walk-on. Like Some people just cannot shake that narrative. It helps him in some ways with the story, right? But in a lot of ways, people just have this kind of fixed mindset when it comes to Stetson Bennett. And the other thing that really hurts him is that he plays for Georgia, right? People look at him and say, well, you know, Stetson's just a, he's a five foot ten nobody. He's a former walk-on. He just happens to have a ton of talent around him. And so that's why he puts up some good numbers, and that's why his teams win. It's not really about him. It's about everyone else around him. He's kind of just along for the ride. Whereas people look at TCU and say, oh, man, they don't recruit very well. Duggan didn't have a lot of talent around him. So uh, he obviously had a lot more to do with them winning than Stetson did. And I, and I look at it and say, huh, I don't know, man. Quentin Johnson might be the first receiver taken in the NFL draft. So... I don't know what this talk is about them not having talent around them. Darius Davis is the best returner in the country. He's, an, he's a dynamic weapon. Tay Barber is another really good receiver. Kendra Miller is a beast at running back. I think they have plenty of talent around them. Were they all big-time five-star recruits? No, but that doesn't mean they aren't talented players. doesn't mean they aren't NFL players because they are. And then with Stroud, I mean, Stroud finished above Stetson. I'm not going to make a huge deal out of that because we're talking about uh, a very, very negligible difference here. I mean, Stroud had, what, 539 total points. Stetson had 349. Stroud had two, had one more first-place vote in Stetson. Their numbers were also very close. What Stroud had over Stetson, again, is touchdown passes. He had 37 touchdown passes to Stetson's 20. So really what you saw here is if Stetson would have played on a team and in an offense that allowed him to pad his stats, especially in the red zone, and if the team he played on had been less dominant, and he had, so, which meant he would have had to play in the fourth quarter more, he could have padded those stats and put up more numbers, maybe he would have won. But the offense that he plays in and the dominance of his team, I think, worked against him here, and he ended up fourth. It doesn't matter. He didn't win. Like It doesn't matter. If you don't win, like no one's going to say, oh, yeah, you finished second, third. Like No one remembers about that. Like You're going to put that on your on your byline? Like, oh, yeah, I finished second in the, in the Heisman Trophy voting in, two, in 2022. It doesn't really matter if you don't win, so I'm not going to freak out about it. But I was kind of rubbed the wrong way that voters had Max Duggan so far ahead of Stetson when I think that 
If you want to have Duggan ahead of him, I'm not going to argue with it. I think it's you can make a reasonable argument there. But for him to be so far head and shoulders above Stetson in the voting, I think it's crazy. And it's just further indication that most of these thousand people who have Heisman Trophy votes should have them taken away from them because they have no idea what they are talking about. But I do think I kind of got a little bit away from that question. So let me kind of rein myself back in here. So what my bout have looked like? If it was open to the entire country, I'm going to go with Charlie. I think Jalen Carter is the best player in the country. And I would like to think that's how I would vote if I had a Heisman Trophy vote. So I would have gone Jalen Carter one. I would have gone Bryce Young two. I know he did not have the numbers that he put up last year, but he had issues with his wide receiver core, which I told you guys coming this season he was going to because those guys just ain't it. They're good players. They're not the caliber players he's had that they've had at Alabama in the past to work with. And the offensive line has some issues at times. He got banged up, but Bryce Young was consistently awesome for that team. And then I probably would have had Caleb Williams third on my list. Stetson, if I again, if I'm open up to the entire country, with Stetson been, been on my on my ballot? Probably not. And that's not me saying he doesn't deserve to be there. If I got to vote for four or five players, he probably would have been on that list for me. In fact, he probably would have been fourth for me. To be honest with you, I would have had Caleb Williams number three, um, and I would have probably had Stetson four. So he would have been right there for me. And the first part of your question, Carl, I don't think Charlie or I, either one of us, addressed this. But did Stetson get shafted coming in fourth? I'm kind of late on my thoughts there. I don't think there's any issue with Caleb Williams winning. Max Duggan I kind of have an issue with. But I'm not going to play the disrespect card here. I'm not going to play the disrespect card because it's hard to, for a quarterback, for a player like Stetson to be disrespected when he was one of four players in the entire country to get an invite to New York as a Heisman finalist. Now, do I think he was disrespected within that final group of four? Sure, maybe you can argue that, but I'm not going to play the victim here. Again, one of four players in the entire country to get this invite, to get this honor. So I'm not going to play the disrespected card here on that one. I know some of you feel that way, and that's totally fine, but I'm just, I'm not going to go there with this one. But I hope Stetson does, because I have always felt that Stetson plays better when he's got that chip on his shoulder. So I hope he plays it that way. Okay, our next question comes from Christian. He says, even though Stetson didn't win, how important was it for UGA that Stetson was selected as a Heisman finalist? Obviously, that was very important for the program. For Stetson, what's your take? Okay, I'm going to try not to be as long with this one, Charlie. I can see you kind of staring at me there, kind of glaring at me a little bit. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Yes, obviously this is big for our program. Now, our program is in fantastic shape. I would argue our program is in better shape than any program in America right now. And I don't see that changing anytime moving forward here in the near future because Kirby Smart is just incredible. But we have had issues at times recruiting offensive skill players, specifically wide receivers. And while we've landed some good quarterbacks, I mean, we did land Justin Fields back in the day. Obviously, he transferred, but we did land him. We landed Brock Vandegrift, who was a five-star at the time. In some of those different recruiting sites, he did drop down to a high four-star when the cycle was all said and done. And same thing with Gunnar Stockton. At times, he was a five-star, dropped down to a high four-star late in the cycle. But we've landed some really good quarterbacks. Carson Beck was another pretty highly rated four-star coming out of high school. But we haven't really, outside of Justin Fields, you know, years ago now, we've been in the mix in the running for some of these big-time elite signal callers from the high school level, but have not quite been able to like close the deal, right? I mean, CJ Stroud, now he's a guy that 
wasn't a big five-star recruit the entire cycle when he was coming out a couple years ago out of California, but he was a, a late riser and like he got really hot late in that cycle. And we were right there, guys. It really came down to us in Ohio State. Obviously, we know how that played out. He ended up going to Ohio State, but we were right there in the mix for him. We ended up taking Dewan Mathis late when we missed, when we flipped him, um, when we missed out on CJ Stroud. <laughs> we know how that played out, right? Arch Manning in, in this last class, going back to this summer, we recruited him about as well as you possibly could. But at the end of the day, we couldn't close the deal. It was us. It was Texas. It ended up being Texas. That was the choice. So we are right there because we're Georgia. And we can get our foot in the door with anybody. And Kirby Smart and our staff recruit their tails off week in, week out, all throughout the year. But we've had trouble laying, number one, those receivers. Like We've had a lot of issues with that. And while we've gotten some really good quarterbacks, some of those top-level guys, those elite, elite guys that we've been right there for, like in the final group four, we just have haven't been able to close the deal at the very, very end. And a big part of that for both receivers and for quarterbacks is the negative recruiting that we face from opposing staffs in regards to our offensive style of play and really when it comes down to like the numbers you're going to put up. Because what do these players want? Every single one of them want to play in the NFL. Now, some of them have other priorities and they rank their priorities a little bit differently, but all of them at or near the top have getting to the league and getting paid way up there, right? And how do you get paid? You get drafted in the first round. And if you look at Georgia's offense, what opposing coaches have sold all these recruits on is that our offense, number one, doesn't put up numbers for receivers. Number two, doesn't put up numbers for quarterbacks. And we don't get quarterbacks drafted in the first round. We don't get receivers drafted in the first round. The fact that we've only had one receiver in the history of our program, Terrence Edwards back in in 2002 to go over a thousand yards is used against us constantly. The lack of numbers our quarterbacks put up and the lack of success we've had we've had with quarterbacks getting drafted in the first round is used against us constantly. I mean, we lean on Matthew Stafford still, guys. You go you go into into Bud Smear and look at some of the graphics we have. Stafford still featured prominently because he's the one quarterback that we have that we can point to and say, hey, yeah, look at this guy. Guys, that was that was 2008, 2009, right? When he got drafted. We're going on 15 years ago. Stafford's an old man in, in the NFL now. Those guys, like some of them don't even know he played in Georgia. So for us to be able to point at Stetson Bennett and say, hey, look, we've got evidence. We put a dude in New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony one of only four finalists in the entire country. That catches the attention of quarterbacks out there for sure and also receivers because if we can start saying, look, look, look at Stetson. Like you've also you've often heard from all these other coaches out there that Georgia's not going to have an elite signal caller throwing you the football. She's not going to put up those numbers. Well we just put a guy in New York. And I also think the fact that it was Stetson and not a former five star actually helps us because our coaches can point at that and say, look at what we did with this former walk-on. Look at how we developed him. This guy wasn't a five-star. He's a five-foot, 10, 175-pound soaking wet dude when he got here to campus with curly hair all over the place. And look what we turned this guy into. So if you want to be developed, you want a chance to win championships, you want a chance to get to New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony, come to Georgia. You're more physically gifted than this guy, right? You're a five-star. You've got more talent than he does. So if he was able to get there with our development, what are you going to be able to do? Absolutely, that helps us fight against a lot of the negative recruiting that takes place against us on the recruiting trail. So yeah, it definitely helps. And Charlie, I know we got a couple more questions to get to, but before we move on, I do want to quickly just remind everyone out there once again about our guys at my bookie. 
Hey guys, even though the college football season is winding down, that doesn't mean there aren't other things to bet on and make some money on. In fact, I made a nice little chunk of change this weekend betting on college basketball. The NFL is still in full swing right now. The playoffs are coming up before you know it. So there is plenty of action for you to get in on right now. So make sure to go to mybookie.ag. Use that promo code UGA when you sign up for a new account. And once you make that first deposit, they will match that deposit up to $200 in cash. No strings attached, guys. There's no playthroughs, rollovers, anything like that. It's money that's put into your account. And as soon as you bet that initial deposit, so if you deposit 50 bucks, as soon as you bet 50 bucks, you can withdraw that cash and put it directly into your wallet and go do some holiday shopping or do whatever it is that you want to do with it. So make sure to jump in on that action while you still can, guys. Again, that's promo code UGA at mybookie.ag. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with mybookie. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, this next question is kind of long, so just listen carefully. Steven says there are several programs with comparable talent level to Georgia's, including Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, and even Texas A&M, that have not managed to have the same level of success that Georgia has had over the past two seasons. So what makes Georgia different? Man, Steven, I really like this question. I appreciate it, buddy. This is a good one. Yeah, I, I think this is a very insightful question because he's exactly right. There is a very small, exclusive group of teams that I would categorize as recruiting superpowers, right? Obviously, we are right there in that group. Alabama is in that group. Ohio State is consistently in that group. Clemson, at times, is in that group. They can they have kind of some seasons where they're like in the top five. Some seasons, they're somewhere in the top 10. They're kind of on the fringe of that group. A&M of late has certainly been in that recruiting superpower group. And there's a couple more, but those are the, the regulars in, in that exclusive group of recruiting superpowers. And while Alabama has certainly had more success than us over the past decade, clearly, like we can't argue that, over the past two years, of that exclusive group of recruiting superpowers, we have had more success than anyone. Alabama played the national title last year. They did not make the playoffs this year. We're the only team to make the playoffs of that group. Each of the last two years, we're the only team in that group to have won the national championship in the past two years. So what's changed? Like, like what do you make of that? Why are we having more success, at least in this, this short period of time of the last two years, 
than those other teams? I think it's a fantastic question. And there's three things that come to mind for me. Like, why are we different? Why are we having more success even though those teams are recruiting on the same level. It's not saying those teams aren't having success. Ohio State is in the playoff this year. Alabama was there last year. Alabama, uh, you know, Saban famously made their case of why they should be in the playoff. They were number five. Clemson won the ACC, screwed themselves over by losing by one point at home to South Carolina, or they would have been in the playoffs. So they've had success with the exception of AM, who was de- was fine last year, what, eight and four last year, I think, and this year fell off the face of the earth. But why have we kind of separated from the pack here over the past couple years? I think there's three things. Number one, culture. This program, guys, is built on solid ground. The foundation is rock freaking solid. The buy-in is there. Kirby talks all the time about our program, our team, being a player-led team, a player-led program, and I believe it. You see it out there. Those guys fight for each other. Those guys come back when they don't have to. Guys, Jalen Carter didn't have to come back to play this season. Jalen Carter still been in a first-round draft pick. He didn't have to. Now, by virtue of him coming back, did he elevate his draft stock a little bit? Maybe to put himself in, like, potentially position to be the number one overall draft pick? Sure, but I don't think that's why he came back. I think he came back because he wanted to help his team, you know? I mean, he came back, he was playing against Missouri. He still wasn't 100% there and got banged up a little bit more. Missed a couple weeks. Could have just set out. Could have set out. Could have pulled a Jackson Smith and Jigba and just set out the rest of the year. Could have pulled a Jamar Chase from a couple years ago. Could have done that easily, and it would not have really hurt his draft stock. He was still easily been a top 10, probably a top five player. It was going to happen. He put enough on tape. But the dude came back. That's culture, okay? That's culture, and he's been a difference maker since he's come back. We don't have the the toxic locker room that you see in some of these places. You hear all the all the rumors coming out of places like Texas A&M. I'm not saying we don't have some infighting. I'm, I'm not saying that we don't have some guy like not not everyone loves everyone when you got 85 players on the roster. Not everyone's going to be your best friend, but we don't have that toxicity in our locker room the way that you see at some of these other places. Some of the rumors and some of the stories you hear coming out of those programs. Kirby Smart has built that culture, and also he's built the culture, the expectation we play to a standard. That's part of our culture too, that we go to work all year long in practice, in workouts, games. That culture, it means something. It matters. That's a big part of our success. The other thing I would point out here, number two, is coaching slash development. I believe that we have the best coaching staff in America, guys. I truly believe that. There's some other great coaching staffs out there. I don't think that any staff out there is better than ours. I think week in and week out, we are better prepared than our opponents. Our game plans, what we try to do to attack our opponents, to slow them down, it's just better than our opponents. I've told you many times, I almost implicitly trust Kirby Smart. That doesn't mean he's perfect. doesn't mean get things right every single time. But going to every matchup, I always feel like we will have the matchup advantage going into every single game because not not necessarily on game day. Like That's a part of it, sure. I mean, Todd Mung is a, a, a mad scientist up there calling plays. But it's what we do during the week preparation-wise, getting our guys ready. No stone unturned. The detail-oriented nature of how we approach our program and coaching and getting these players to to pay attention to what's going on, like the minute little details in film study, all those little things, they all matter. And the way that we develop players too, I mean, Stetson Bennett, I've mentioned this before, I think he's maybe the greatest developmental story in the history of college football. And I I shouldn't say the history of college football because I don't go back 40, 50, 60 years. But in my lifetime, I I can't think of a better true like developmental story than Stetson Bennett. This guy was a walk-on, a very small, undersized walk-on at that and had to leave and come back. You guys know the story. We don't don't need to rehash it again. But think about Stetson Bennett in 2020 and Stetson Bennett now. Talk about development. I mean, we we criticized Stetson fairly in 2020 times. We were all, and I include myself in this, we were all just begging to see JT Daniels in 2020. 
But in 2021, when, when Stetson got his shot, he was better than he was in 2020. This year, Stetson has taken another, I think, massive leap forward from where he was last year. This guy continues to work, and that's a, it's a testament to Stetson, sure, continues to work and grind, absolutely, can't take that away from him. But our coaching staff also getting this out of him, developing him the way that we have I think it speaks volumes about our coaching, our development within our program. Think about a guy like Chris Smith, who didn't play for a couple years. That guy's one of the best players in the country, and he didn't play for two and a half years while he was here in Athens just waiting his turn. And look when he got his chance. Look what he's able to do. Lab McConkey, another one. And I think that's also partly you know evaluation when it comes to recruiting, and we, we really evaluated Lad very well. But Lad's not a physical you know, beast, you know, from like his physical profile, but he goes out there and he just gets the job done. We have developed him. We developed a guy like Dejan Edwards at running back. We developed a guy like Channing Tindall. That guy wasn't, you know, the Channing Tindall that we saw last year for his entire career. No, he wasn't at all. Same thing with Devontae White. We developed Devontae White. And that's one thing that I just don't think that Kirby and our coaching staff gets enough credit for is how developmental our program has become. People just want to act like Kirby's just a recruiter and doesn't like actually coach, which is just such an insane fallacy. It's not even funny, but it's just not reality. And the last thing here, and this might sound so simplistic, but I really believe this, guys. And it kind of goes, it kind of ties in with culture a little bit and also coaching. But I think our guys just play really hard. I think we consistently play harder than our opponents. I really believe that. When you watch our teams play, you guys watch all these games. I'm not saying the opponents don't play hard. They usually play harder against us than they do other teams because it's Georgia and we're the defending national champion. But I think our guys play insanely hard. Take Malachi Starks, for example. I'm going to go all the way back to Missouri. The, the play that saved our season, honestly. We were going to probably lose that game. You can never say never, but probably going to lose that game if he doesn't chase down that Schrader dude on that breakaway run and stop him at the one-yard line, and we end up holding him to a field goal. If he does not get on his freaking horse and chase that dude down, we probably lose that game, and we're probably not going to go to the cultural playoff. Or maybe we would. I don't know how it played out, but like it definitely would have damaged our chances. And he didn't have to run that hard. He got on his freaking horse and ran after that dude and chased him down. How many games do you guys watch every single week where you see guys break away like that and you see the guys chasing kind of just jogging? They just give up, right? Nah, not here. That's not what we do, man. We play hard. Again, going back to the culture, that's the standard. That's the expectation. And that's what our guys do week in and week out to a degree that I really don't see consistently from other teams, to be quite honest with you. Next up, we have an SEC championship game question from Hal. He says that we didn't hear Harold Perkins Jr.'s name all game long in the SEC title game. He was a terror to other teams all season long. So how do we neutralize him? Give us the specifics on that. Yeah, another great question. And how I want to say, uh, first off, thanks for the question. I appreciate you, man. And also, just a quick shout out. Uh, I think this is the first question that I have been aware that you've sent in. At least I don't think I've seen your name before. So welcome. Don't be a stranger. Keep the questions coming. And thank you very much for listening to our podcast. But how to answer your question, there's two things that I think that we did that really kind of took Harold Perkins out of this game. And at least one of them was what I was kind of harping on going into the game in the preview episode of like what what can we do to neutralize this guy because he, he has the ability to be a game wrecker like we saw against Arkansas about a month ago where their offense couldn't do anything and he was just like wrecking the game and just taking the game over entirely himself he really like single-handedly won that game so how do we keep him from doing that uh two things the first one's kind of what I was talking about coming into the SEC championship game we ran the ball right at him not every single time like you, you can't get that pretty predictable if you run the ball at him every single time they can start slanting and stunting and doing some different things but we ran the ball at him a lot now we didn't run counter as much as I thought we would in the first half we ran a lot of zone stuff a lot of split zone a lot of inside zone stuff in the first half kind of soften him up and then the second half that's when we pulled out 
counter and just kind of bludgeoned them with that. And he was having a tough time with split zone and inside zone, just kind of having guys in his face. And then we pulled out counter and ran out at him with pulling guards in his face. Like, nah, man, like he, he couldn't handle that. And uh, that's just, that, that's, that's how you handle a guy that is a dynamic pass rusher and is an incredible athlete that, that can chase plays down from the backside. You don't give him the chance to do that. You run the ball at him, right? Because if you do that, then you take away what he does best. And he's also undersized. He's a true freshman. He is not physically strong enough right now to consistently hold up against that kind of attack when you have big 330-pound guards running right at him trying to bury him in the ground. And so we did a lot of that. That certainly helped. And then the other thing that we did is that when we threw the ball, like, okay, if he's a great pass rusher, when you're not running the ball, how do you keep him from dominating the game as a pass rusher like he did against Arkansas a couple weeks ago? Well, you make it unpredictable when you throw the football. So we ran a lot of play action, and we threw the ball a lot of play action on first and second down, especially early in the game. Go back and watch, guys. I don't have the numbers right, right here in front of me. I should have counted that up. I didn't. Maybe I'll go back and do that here in the in the coming days and have that for you later on. But we threw the ball a lot on first and second down, especially off play action. If you're off play action, that takes a little bit of his pass rush away, right? And then throwing the ball on standard downs on first and second down, he has to account for the run more there than he does when it's like third and long. We can just kind of pin his ears back and come after you with reckless abandon. You don't allow him to do that. You take him away from his strengths. And that, along with the fact that we kept running at him pretty consistently, that really neutralized him and took him out of that game. So, Great job by Todd Monk and the offensive staff. Great game plan. Um, and honestly, I, I don't know why we, we would expect anything less because that's what they do each and every week. Okay, Peter's question goes along with the SEC championship performance, but think about Keeley Ringo in the SEC championship, also all season. Peter wants to know if he would still be a first-round draft pick, in your opinion, like all the draft analysts have said all season long. Yeah, Peter, I'm uh, I'm starting to have my doubts here, man. I, I think that Keeley still has first round talent in terms of, like his physical ability. Like I've said many times over the past couple of weeks, and look, I, I know that we've gotten a lot of questions about Keeley. I know there were a ton of you that had questions about Keeley Ringo. He was by far the most popular question topic coming out of the SEC Championship game. So I'm sorry if we didn't pick your question. We just went with the first ones that we saw and we didn't want to repeat ourselves over and over again with like literally 10, 11, 12 different questions about Keely Ringo. Like that's how many questions we got about him. Um, so we answered one last week and uh, this one's a little bit different. So we went with this question from Peter. So I just want to put that out there. Don't anyone think that we're ignoring you. We don't see you. We're not paying attention. Keep your questions coming. I promise um, we'll get, we'll, we'll use your questions in the future. We just had a lot about Keely Ringo and we didn't want to just like beat you over the head with it and beat a dead horse too much but getting back to this question I still think Keeley's a, a first round talent like I said like he's he's consistently in position right like most of the time you can say every time but most of the time it's not like he's out there just getting flat out torched and people are burning past him like that's not happening he's, his technique is largely good he's largely in phase on a pretty consistent basis the problem as I said last week continues to be ball skills and awareness awareness, I, I think you can teach to a degree, right? Like sometimes you just have it or you don't, but I think that's something like with practice and reps, you become, you, you can enhance your awareness. Ball skills, I think can be enhanced. Again, it's one of those things I think like some people just have naturally incredible ball skills, but it's something that you can develop and improve on over time. He's got to continue to develop in both those areas because he's there to make plays. He's just not consistently making those plays. But at some point, if you're going to be a first-round draft pick and, and, and an NFL team is going to invest that kind of capital in you, then you have to start making those plays, right? Like just being there in position 
at some point, it's just not good enough, right? Like you actually have to make plays. It's good to be there in a position to, to make those plays, but you got to also make the plays. And he has made some. I don't want to sit here and just bash Keeley. Keeley's made plenty of plays. We'll never forget the national championship game. The, the interception against Tennessee was like textbook stuff. So we've seen him do it. And that's probably the, the most frustrating part of it is like, we know he can't. We've seen him do it. You just got to do it more consistently, Keeley, right? So with that in mind, like I would say, I I'm starting to doubt whether he'll be a first round draft pick right now. Now the his performance in the playoffs could change things. We have a, a great challenge ahead of us against Ohio State. Dynamic receivers, great passing offense, great quarterback, high trophy finalist in his own right. So Keeley could come out and um, and answer the bell in the right way and really respond in a big way. And he could be right back in that conversation if he starts to show that he can do those things against these kind of receivers, this kind of passing attack. But I think it, the question is very fair right now. Um, if he does not improve, we see more of the same of what we saw in the SEC Championship game. I think he very well could drop out of the first round and might put himself in a position where it, he would really benefit from coming back for another year. Now, if he's a second-round guy, he'll probably still go. But he he is a first-round talent. He's just got to clean up some of those things. I do think there are things that can be improved on. He's just got to continue to work. We'll just uh, have to see how he responds here in a couple of weeks, hopefully the right way. And Charlie, I know we have a few more questions to get to. So before we get there, real quickly, I just want to remind everyone also about our other good friends at Alumni Hall. You still have a couple of weeks to do some holiday shopping, guys. If you missed out on the Black Friday deals, no worries. Just sign up for their email alerts and you'll you'll get all their flash sales, all their deals. They, they offer those pretty consistently, guys. I'm, I know they're going to have some here before the holiday season fully ends. So make sure, go to their website, sign up for their email uh, alerts, and they'll hook you guys up. And they just have the best selection, guys. If you're looking for friends, family that are Georgia fans in your lives, if you're looking for a little something for yourself, or, or maybe you just want like, you're putting together a Christmas list, list and you want to find some of the best Georgia gear anywhere, just send all the people who want to buy you gifts links to Alumni Hall. Just go search their website, find what you like there, send those links and get hooked up that way, right? But whatever your purpose is, if you're in the market for some Georgia gear and accessories, Alumni Hall is hands down the place to go because it is where the Bulldog shop. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Okay, we only have a few questions left. Terry wants to know, what is one thing that concerns you the most about the matchup with Ohio State? I'm sure we're going to have a lot more Ohio State questions in the coming weeks, so give us your take on this one. Yeah, I have a lot of stuff planned to preview this Peach Bowl matchup with Ohio State. I think what we're going to do, at least right now, unless I change my mind, I think what we're going to do is we're going to do a a preview of the Ohio State offense versus the Georgia defense, a preview of the Ohio State defense versus the Georgia offense, and then we'll have kind of pull everyone together and have our our official final 
Peach Bowl preview and all our final thoughts on on that game. So we are going to have a ton of coverage of the Peach Bowl matchup here over the coming weeks, but we'll give you a, a little bit of a taste here as well. What is the one thing that concerns me the most about this matchup? I think on the surface here, and I, I'm now about halfway through my film study of Ohio State. Got a little bit more to go, but um, what I've seen so far, clearly what concerns me the most is their wide receiver core. Those guys are loud awesome. Now, Jackson Smith and Jigba is not playing, and that would have like really put my stress level on high alert, but he's not playing. Still, though, they have a ton of really good receivers. Three guys, really. Two that are their top guys, Julian Fleming as their third option, a really talented guy, a former five-star recruit in his own right. But Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka, two 1,000-yard receivers, and they are awesome guys. Like, Abuka is a little bit more of the burner. Harrison uh, is very fast, but he's not like a, a true like elite speed kind of guy. But what s- separates both those guys from your run-of-the-mill receiver, in my opinion, watching them play now, is their route running ability. They are so quick and shifty, so quick in and out of breaks. They consistently create separation with their route running ability. And with a guy like Keely, I think I mentioned this a little bit last week, that does concern me a little bit. Uh, more than a little bit, actually, because Keely, as talented physically as he is, I do think he has a little stiffness in his hips, and when you and that becomes more of a problem when you face some of these like really crafty, polished route runners that get in and out of their breaks very, very quickly. That kind of concerns me to a degree. I think Kamari's done a really good job. He's, I, I mean, Kamari's our our best cover guy right now. Like that, he's been for a couple of weeks now, uh, a couple of games. It's been pretty clear if you watch it closely, which I know you guys do. But, I mean, look, this is a big challenge. Even Kamari's had some moments where he's gotten beaten. This is, I don't know if it's the best receiving core that we face, probably. Uh, that in Tennessee, I, guys, I think LSU's receiving core is really, really, really good, too. I don't think there's that much of a gap between Ohio State and LSU. I mean, they have some NFL dudes on that roster as well. Um, Tennessee obviously has the Blitnikoff Award winner. Their offense is built a little bit differently, as we talked about last week, than Ohio State's, but a really strong receiving core. So we face some really good receiving units. Uh, we completely bottled one up in Tennessee. And then, now that was at home, so there's that. And then the SEC Championship game, they threw about 500 on us. So that's a little bit of a different story. Now, we were playing defense a little bit differently in that game, obviously. So there's some context there. But after what we did see against LSU and a backup quarterback for half that game, just lighting us up through the air, we would be, um, I think I would be remiss to not be at least somewhat concerned about this matchup against an extraordinarily talented wide receiver core for Ohio State. And also a quarterback, let's not forget, again, in his own right, was a Heisman Trophy finalist who does, he's not very mobile, but is extraordinarily accurate. I mean, he's about as accurate of a quarterback as I've seen in quite a few years when he's when he's given a clean pocket. So we're going to uh, we're gonna have to really disrupt that because if he's, if he's able to sit back there and has time and a clean pocket and those receivers are able to just run all day and, and increase separation with their route running, it's going to be a tough game for us. So that's certainly um, my number one concern as of right now about halfway through my film study. Okay, and for our last question this week, it has to do with the coaching carousel, which is always entertaining and ever-changing. David says, with a couple of our coaches already being mentioned for other jobs, is there anyone you think leaves after the season? And which coach is the most important to keep on the staff? Yeah, the two names that we've heard over the past week are Todd Munkin in connection with the Purdue job. I think it was Bruce Feldman from Fox Sports who uh, tweeted that out, and I'm... And the more you read about it as the week went on, the more smoke there seemed to be there. But by the time we got to this weekend, it seemed like that talk had died down more or less and that it's probably not going to be Monk in there. And then you have Trey Scott, our defensive line coach, who did interview for the available defensive coordinator job at Arkansas, obviously has a relationship with Sam Pittman, going back to Pittman's days here. 
I do not think that Trey Scott is going to get that job. My thinking on that is pretty simple. Sam Pittman um, had a disappointing year. They had a really nice year in 2021. They were 6-6 six and six this year. I'm disappointed in them, as you guys know, and I know their fan base is probably disappointed with that. Now, when you're talking about a program that was winning like, you know, they went like, what, a year and a half, two years almost without winning an SEC game, 6-6 six and six is still pretty nice, but they blew some games they absolutely should have won. Like losing to Liberty the way they lost, shouldn't have lost that game. Losing to AM the way they lost, KJ Jefferson trying to do like a Superman dive from like the seven-yard line and then fumbles the ball. Like, what are you doing? Dude, come on. Losing to Missouri like that. I mean, they, they, again, they lost four games by a combined nine points. And the offense wasn't the problem. The reason they lost those games is because their defense was one of the worst defenses in recent memory in the SEC. I mean, Ole Miss was really bad what, in 2020. They were almost as bad this year on that side of the ball. And then Barry Odom, who's a fantastic defensive coordinator, is one of the reasons they did have this kind of resurgence under Sam Pittman the first two years, you know, back in 2020, the COVID year, and also last year. He's gone. He's left to go to UNLV and take that job. It wasn't really his fault necessarily that they, in my opinion, at least watching them all year, that they were so bad on defense. They had so many injuries. I mean, the first week, guys, they had two of their starters in the secondary go out pretty much for the year. They had a, they had a guy, Miles Slusher, quit on the team late in the year. I mean, they just had so many injuries. And uh, then you're losing Drew Sanders, who was clearly your best player. Bumper pool at linebackers gone. You lose your defense coordinator. Sam Pittman needs a, a good year this year. I, I believe that. Sam Pittman, uh, they can have a bad year. He still have to keep that job because they just love him there and he's kind of brought back their, their pride and respectability. But he needs to bounce back or he will go into 2024 firmly on the hot seat no matter how much they love him. So I think this is a really important hire for Sam Pittman because we know Sam is a great guy, um, really great, great recruiter, knows how to build the programs. He watched Kirby Smart do it. Saw a lot of good players, a lot of good coaches do that, build their programs. And he knows how to do that. And he's a great fit for Arkansas. But Pittman's an offensive line coach. He's never been a coordinator day in his life. Like he doesn't, like he's not a big X's and O's type guy, right? Like he's more of the CEO of that program. The big reason, in my opinion, why they were able to elevate that program so quickly in his tenure was the hires he made at both offensive and defensive coordinator, bringing Kendall Bryles in as his OC and Barry Odom as his DC. I mean, those were incredible hires, and he's basically given them free reign on their side of the ball, and it's paid dividends, right? Had some injuries on defense this year, so it didn't work out quite as well as they wanted to, but still had two great coordinator hires. If Sam Pittman does not hit on this defensive coordinator hire, I don't know if Arkansas is going to be that good next year because the, the talent is not necessarily there. They have some really good players on offense, and KJ Jefferson's coming back. Browse, as of right now, is still around, so they'll be set there. But they were fine on offense this year. And KJ De- Jefferson dealt with some injuries, but offensively they were fine this year. It was the defense was a problem, so he needs to fix that. He needs to fix it fast. And is hiring a guy that you have a lot of respect for is a good coach, but has never coordinated defense in his life. Is that really the fast way to fix that? I think he needs to go with more of an established name who's done it and can and can turn that around pretty quickly. And I think Trey Scott could be a really good coordinator here in the future at some point. I just don't know if I would risk my job on it potentially if I was Sam Pittman. I don't think that he will. So I don't think Trey Scott's going to get that job. And again, it looks like Monk is not going to get that Purdue job. Although I, I have to feel that at some point it's just a matter of time until Munkin gets that offer. Now, I will say the thing that we have going for us with Munkin right now is that he is handsomely paid. He's paid over $2 million, right? He gets a raise every single year. And he deserves it. He is as, God, he's as good as there is in the country. I mean, I love this guy. I mean, he has turned our offense around to where we we are consistently one of the best offenses in the country, whether people want to recognize that or not. We are. And while, of course, all these guys want to have their own program, that's natural. They want to be the guy. They want to make that money, right? And they want to, they want to get all the love and all the respect and admiration for that. But at some point, you look at Todd Munkin, and he's, well, I think he's like 56 years old, and you say, okay, well, 
if he's going to take a job as a head coach, it's got to be the next couple of years, right? Like you get in the 60s, it's very rare that a guy like in his 60s gets hired at a big time job, right? Especially one that's being elevated from a coordinator role. It's not unprecedented, but it's usually not the route you see most of these programs go. So I think the clock is ticking there for him. So if he doesn't take a job in the next like three to four years, I think he might just stay here. And maybe it's an NFL job, an NFL coordinator job, but why would he go to the NFL? Like I know there's recruiting at the college level, but there's a lot of stability here. He knows he's always going to have access to superior players here at Georgia. In the NFL, you don't have that, right? And there's a, there's a lot less stability because it's harder to get an edge in talent. And I know he might not like recruiting, but the thing is with Kirby Smart, he doesn't have to do all that much recruiting. Yeah, he does some. He talks to some guys and they come on official visits. He's here and he walks them through tape and all that. He'll go do in-home visits and visit schools here and there. But he's not, the coordinators don't do as much of the recruiting as some of the position coaches do, like traditionally, uh, in terms of like the day-to-day grind kind of thing. So he doesn't do as much recruiting as a guy like, I don't know, Todd Hartley might do, or a guy like Trey Scott might do, or a guy like Del McGee might do. So what I'm saying is he doesn't have to do as much of the shopping. He doesn't have to do as much as the grocery shopping, but he gets to sit down and enjoy that elite meal just like everyone else. He has all that to work with, right? So that's a tough gig to give up. There's a lot of stability there. He loves Athens from all accounts, everything that I hear. He's paid handsomely. He likes working for Kirby Smart. He's made it very clear in his very limited press availabilities that he has a ton of respect for Kirby Smart. So while I used to think that it was just a matter of time until he moved on and took a head coaching job, the longer he stays here, the more and more I'm thinking, huh, he might be here for longer than I thought initially. Because I thought we'd be lucky to keep him like three years. And here we are, year three, right? And I know his name was mentioned in connection with Purdue. Doesn't look like he's going to get that job. Now, maybe he takes another job. I don't know. But like at this point, what job is still out there that he would want to take that would pry him away from our job? Like he has a chance to be really selective, right? Like if he's, if he's looking to be a head coach, he can sit here and he has the luxury to be really selective. And I don't know any of the jobs that are still available out there would be one that he would want to take that would pry him away from Georgia. And again, I think the, t- the clock is ticking here. The, the longer it goes, the less likely it is, I think, that he gets one of those really high-level jobs that he would be selective about. So as long as things keep humming the way they are, I think we might have Munkin for a couple more years at least. I think there's a really good a really good chance there. And for the second part of that question, who do I think is the, the coach that's most important to keep on staff? Like I said, I think we have an incredible coaching staff. I want to keep all of them. But who's the most important? Todd Munkin. Like I, I'm not saying that we can't replace him. Kirby always has a list, of course. And maybe it's in-house. Maybe it's Buster Faulkner. Maybe it's Mike Bobo. I know a lot of you would not like that. I think I'd be probably fine with that. We'll talk We'll talk about that when, when we have to talk about it, if it gets to that point. But Munkin has just done an incredible job with our office. Think about where we've come, where we are now, compared to where, where we were, even under Jim Chaney, early in Kirby's tenure, especially 2019 with James Coley. Like, think about that, guys. Munkin has done that, okay? Like, this guy is elite. He is an elite offensive coordinator, and I want to keep him as long as I possibly can. We're Georgia. We will attract a lot of top options if he leaves. But at this point, he has done a great job of building our system, right? And these players have worked in this system for a couple of years now. We're going to have a new quarterback next year, whether it's Carson Beck, whether it's Brock Vandegrift, Gunnar Stockton, maybe a transfer option. I don't know what it's going to be. But if it's one of the guys that's been in-house, one of the things that you know makes me feel a little bit better about the situation, about not having Stetson next year, if it's one of these guys that's in-house right now, is that they've been in this system for three years, right? It'll be whoever it is. Well, if it's if it's Beck, it'll be his fourth year. If it's Vanegar, it'll be his third year. If it's Stockton, it'll be his second year. So it's not like you're learning an entirely new offense, new coordinator. Like, you know the system. You see Beck out there this year. I'm not saying that like he's been like, a superstar when he's been out there, but he seems like he is in control and he understands what's going on because he's been in the system for a while. So uh, that continuity would help us with the transition to a new quarterback next year. So I certainly hope he's still around next year, 
because that system does matter, and I think that's really, really important. I love Glenn Schumann. I want to keep Glenn Schumann as long as we possibly can. I think that guy is a, I mean, I've been saying for years he's a rising star in the profession. I still believe that he has the coordinator job now. Um, but if we, if he left, I mean, you still got Will Muschamp there, and uh, I know he hasn't had a ton of success as a head coach, but wherever he's been as a DC, he's done a really good job, and obviously even Kirby speak the same language, and Kirby's also intimately involved with the defense. That's why I have to go offense, too. It's like Kirby, I love Schumann. I love Dan Lanning, but Danning left, and you, Lanning left, and you saw what we were able to do on defense this year, even with all that talent that departed. And part of that Schumann, he's awesome. Part of that's Mushamp, he's awesome too. But also there's this little guy named Kirby Smart, who's a defensive guy by trade. So I'm never really worried about the defensive side of the ball from a coach's standpoint, as long as Kirby's here. So that's why I kind of lean towards offense and who's at the top of the food chain on the offensive side of the ball. It's the coordinator. So I'm gonna go Todd Munkin as a guy that I think is most important to keep on staff. But uh, all right, guys, I think that's all of them. We got to all of them today. I appreciate you guys. We'll have more chances for you to send in mailbag questions here in the coming weeks leading up to the Peach Bowl. But we want to make sure to get to those overflow questions. We, we did not want to leave you guys hanging. We, we love you. We respect you. We appreciate you. When you send in questions, we always try our best to get to all of them. And with no game to preview this week, we had a chance to kind of have this second mailbag episode because we didn't have a game to preview. Kind of gave us that opportunity. So we want to get to uh, to these questions. So appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sending in questions. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.